Welcome to Circuit Break from Macrofab, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and interfacing with DUTs. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 408. Circuit Break from Macrofab. This week, we're joined by a very special guest. Pete Staples founded Blue Clover in 2003 to explore ways to make the electronics industry more efficient. Prior to that, he worked as a systems engineer at Boeing Satellite Systems in El Segundo near LAX. He now lives near San Francisco with his wife, Judy, son, Marco, and dog, Polo. Pete grew up in Midland, Michigan, and at the age of 19, played at the University of Michigan men's soccer team and earned his pilot license. He maintains his private pilot license and looks forward to the electrification of local and regional flight. He holds EE degrees from the University of Michigan and Clemson University and an MBA from UCLA. Blue Clover continues to hone their process to eliminate waste and provide the best value for their clients. In 2018, those efforts culminated in the release of Blue Clover's Production Line 2, or PLT, a cloud-native hardware test automation device. Because of his expertise in device testing, we wanted to catch up with Pete to ask him some questions about such things. So we're happy to have him on Circuit Break. Thank you very much. Great to speak with you guys. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Pete. So my first question, Pete, is I think you're the first person that's ever been on our podcast that was a soccer player that's also a pilot. (laughs) So how did you get into playing like soccer? Well, in my town, we all played AYSO, and then my parents believed in letting me try everything. And soccer was the one thing that I guess I'm, I'm somewhat undersized for football and basketball and soccer just seemed to click for me. And so I just kept, kept on doing that. There was no synergy between flying and playing soccer. It just happened to be two things I latched on to. Gotcha. I know there's like different levels of pilot licenses. So how far up are you in the, the chain Very low. I'm (laughs) single engine land, private pilot. And I was very active when I first got my license and maintained it through college. And then I took a huge, huge hiatus, which is not recommended. You really have to work hard to get back into it. And I was inspired by my son's interest in aviation. And so we went to Oshkosh one year and it just blew his mind. It blew my mind and made me think, yeah, I need to get back into this. There's a certain degree of guilt associated with flying just for pleasure, though, because it's very expensive. It's not very environmentally friendly. And so part of what is behind the renewed interest is this potential that this could all go electric and not just someday 20 years from now, but actually there are some aircraft already that are being used as trainers. And it feels like it's really happening here in the next couple, three years where electric flight can be possible. And it wasn't something I I even imagined when I first started, but there was a white paper actually by Uber called Uber Elevate that Mark Moore and a lot of other clever people put together. And that was really what inspired me to think, wow, this this really could happen. And so uh, I look forward to that. We're, we're only very super indirectly involved, but we're trying to make the work that they do a little bit easier in, in the form of test automation. So yeah, um, 
before we dig into device testing, can you give us like an update of, or actually just like what does Blue Cover provide? So it, it's evolved. I, I wish I had it figured out much, much earlier. It would have saved me a lot of stress. But um, I started out just knowing I wanted to do a lot more projects. So I was at Boeing where there were people who might spend 10 years on a single project and then it could get canceled at the last minute because of a change in the administration and suddenly that contract's canceled and you got to start all over again. So I found that terrifying and I really wanted to get involved in a lot of projects. Maybe you guys can relate to that since you see so many things come through Macrofab. And um, I just started Blue Clover with the idea of doing very rigorous electrical engineering for for customers and helping them design their products. And design led to manufacturing just organically. So uh, I was building up a team in Shenzhen where we had a lot of access to suppliers and engineering resources, and we were we were cost competitive. And we found that the pain was actually more in the manufacturing than in the design. So customers just asked us to take on that responsibility. So it evolved from design house to design and manufacturing, and then quite a bit later became our in-house products, which were originally built to solve in-house problems, but we decided to productize them. And the main one is the production line tool or PLT. And so this is a a box that's purpose-built to live on the production line and make electronics production more streamlined. So yeah, let's uh, dive into that uh, PLT, the uh, production line tool. So I guess the first question will be like, so what does it do? And the thing is, we also, you know, you listen to our podcast feed, so like, for engineers out there, instead of them going out and Google what PLT is, let's just go down it. Yeah, sure. No, it, I guess you can tell it was the marketing was done by engineers, not <laughs> not real marketing people. There was actually something we came across that was just used to program. It was a bunch of dialogue MCUs and it could program 14 of them. And it was basically just a circuit board and they called that the production line tool. And when we were grasping for, well, what did we call this thing we made? That we just said, well, that that kind of makes sense. It's it is that. So, <laughs> and we were too lazy <laughs> to change it. And acronyms are key when you're dealing with an international team. It's really handy to just have acronyms for everything. So PLT it is, and it's four things. So it's a power supply programmable that you can supply power to your your device. It's a programmer, so you could think of it like a J-Link. It's not literally a J-Link, but something that can flash firmware over SWD, USB, UART, JTAG, etc. So it's supplying that function of flashing firmware. Uh, It's a DMM, so we can take various electrical measurements essentially the same kinds of things you do with a handheld DMM. And then it's a Linux computer, and it's a stripped-down, highly secure Linux computer so that it is a very low attack surface. You really don't want a computer that can do a lot of things right there on the production line. You want it as stripped-down as possible. And so we've engineered it to be 
really, really simple for an operator. Essentially, they're pushing a button and then you're getting a test report wherever you may be. And that, that was the, the core concept is uh, connecting engineering teams that are in one location with the production in another location. Yeah, the uh, you mentioned being stripped down where it only has kind of like one function. It just reminds me of way back in the day at Macrofab. Steven and I set up this programming station for this one product that we were building. And a couple of weeks later, they go, hey, it's all it's not working anymore. It's broken. We go over there and it's working. It's just really, 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 really slow. And the the operator had opened up like 800 Chrome tabs <laughs> and like had music like streaming and that kind of stuff. And yeah, they're like, well, I'm just playing Doom on the side here. Like, yeah. <laughs> what's wrong with that? Yeah. And the Chrome was like basically eating like 90% of the RAM of that computer. And so, yeah, definitely, definitely feel that. <laughs> There's no keyboard, uh, you know, that. That's an intentional decision. You know, it's got a couple of buttons and uh, yeah, it's good for doing your work. It's not good for other things. How does a uh, design engineer interface with the uh, the PLT to say put firmware on it or, you know, set up whatever the, the, uh, the code is? So it, it's a cloud native piece of hardware. So it's always connected to the cloud, and that's your means of loading what we call test plans and firmware. Uh, various artifacts can also be part of a, a release. So the release is the package, and that's the deployment mechanism, and you're doing it from a browser or from uh, within GitHub is the, is the other option. So we have what we call CI, CD connector, so that if you live in GitHub, which many people do, you could push out releases directly from there and they would be available to the PLTs. They wouldn't automatically be loaded onto them. We want engineers to have power, but we don't want them to be able to accidentally stop a line. And uh, so they, they make this release available uh, but then on the PLT itself, you check for update and accept the update at the right time. So that is why my test engineer today, because by the way, uh, for our listeners, uh, we use the Blue Clover PLTs at, at Macrofab. My test engineer today asked me to make him a GitHub repo for these test plans. And I'm like, I, I guess you can store them there. Sure. <laughs> <That> <laughs> I cool. had no idea it did that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's... It, it's hardware, but it, the team behind it really comes from that developer background. And so you can imagine all the conversations as, as these devices get more and more complex, just explaining how to how to program an MCU. Like to talk to a layperson, they're just shocked that there's any difficulty. They're like, well, you're making these really high-tech devices. Surely the programming tools are equally, if not more, sophisticated and uh, and you, you just have to say well you'd be surprised uh, <laughs> how much hot milk glue is involved <laughs> in in building the thing that built that thing and uh, we just reached a breaking point where we needed to really engineer something that was itself documented and and supportable that could be doing what, what is an important function? I mean, everything has to get 
program now. And uh, there are a lot of OTA solutions and all, but it still has to get programmed once in the factory. And so that's the problem we really focused on. And so we talked about how the the PLT has a DMM power supply it could program. So how does it actually interface with like a DUT then? Yeah, that's a that's a key point. So we would love there to be just a cable that you could plug into anything, and uh, unfortunately, that's not possible. So we do have standard connectors that are on the back of the PLT and we use standard cables to connect to it, but then it has to come plug into something that's totally custom, every single board. And normally this is board level fixtures that we're talking about. You could use a PLT to do finished goods testing. You could use it for all kinds of things, but the most common use case is uh, a pogo pin fixture of some kind. And we, we call these ICT, other people call ICT other things like Keysight I-3070s and Teradyne equipment that's millions of dollars. Um, but in-circuit testing is also kind of a general term, and we, we use that for these pogo pin fixtures. And um, essentially, in our world, a fixture is made for a board, and then we connect that with the standard cables to the PLT. So how do you determine, I guess we're starting to crack this thing open now. How do you determine, let's say you have your device, how do you determine what to even test from the get-go? I know a lot of a lot of people are like, well, it's like I've asked my dad this, and he's a chemical engineer. And for him, it's like he would he was just like, Well, you just make sure it works. <laughs> and there's a lot of like, how do you like just like a cell phone, how would you hot test everything it can do because there's thousands of things it can do. Now, I know like most things that we build aren't cell phone complicated, but it's one of those, how do you know what to test for? That's a exceptionally important question. And we kind of divide things into two categories. There's, you're testing out your design and then you're testing out your production. And we're geared more for testing production, so it's always going to be less complete than what you might do in a formal lab where you're doing, maybe you're even taking it through regulatory approval and using much more expensive equipment than ours. Like for context, our stations are typically around $5,000 and PLT is $2,400. So that's kind of the the scale. And you wouldn't use that to prove that it's going to meet FCC regulations, things like that. That's what we would consider design level testing. Any product should have requirements uh, that shouldn't be controversial. And it's worth listing them out and defining what type of a requirement it is, and even if you can, how you're going to prove that you're meeting that. So there there are different techniques for which things are you just observing, which things are you, you know, formally testing with test equipment and, and stuff like that. So it is a hard problem. Testing is expensive, and you want to be strategic about it. So you're, you're always going after the things that are going to bite you the most. And it's hard to predict that 
at the start of a project. Our approach has been that the design is very modular. And so there are many cases where people will buy the BLT, they'll build a pogo pin fixture, and that will do a fairly incomplete level of testing. It'll flash the board, it'll check that it's powered up properly, it'll measure a couple voltages that are instructive through test points on the bottom of the board. And then you'll build a few hundred and then you'll learn something. And that might lead you to build another fixture, but you're not starting from zero. You're building another pogo pin cassette. And that's a less expensive iteration to make than you know starting all over and building a giant rack of equipment or filling a rack full of equipment. So um, we certainly endorse self-test, rigorous test planning, rigorous requirements definition. That's all very good to do, but we accept that we're all imperfect and uh, you shouldn't have to feel terrible about building another test fixture because you learned something as you got further into production. You know, given that, I'm curious if you have any suggestions or ideas for design engineers on how to potentially avoid the need to build the second cassette. Make another one. (laughs) Right, right. Do you have any ideas on how to get it right the first time? I think test points don't cost anything. And so making sure that you have access to UART and as many interfaces as possible on every microcontroller on your board, accessing connectors is great so that if you've got a USB connector, it might be easier to test USB through various test points on the bottom instead of only being able to plug things into it because that's much slower to do on the line. So it's great if you can just hit everything with a bed of nails. We run into a lot of people who are prospective customers, but their board's already designed and they say, well, we didn't, we don't have any test points, not a single one. And then they're like, but you can just tap off these through hole legs and uh, interface that way. And it's like, we can, it's, there are risks. So having a thorough set of test points, I think is the biggest tip and, and getting them all on the bottom and not 0.1 millimeters apart, you know, just have, imagine this thing going into a fixture as you're designing it instead of, uh, having to shoehorn it in later, I think would be be a key thing. Yeah, I think the they make some really, really fine pitch pogo pin stuff. I think about the closest pitch you can probably get, though, is about 50 mils or 1.27 millimeters. So you can get closer, but if you want like a, a fixture that can actually like last, so you need like replaceable pogo pins, right? Yeah. And so you need to use those sockets. Yeah, the, the pins typically are replaceable. So people ask like, how long will it last? And we just put a five-year warranty on everything. So if a pogo pin wears out, our approach is typically to just use pliers to pull it out of the receptacle and put in a new pin. And that's gotten us pretty far actually. So Blue Clover will actually help people build their actual- The pogo pin stuff, yeah. The ICT part, the physical interface. 
we weren't dying to do that. I mean, I would love to just say, <laughs> hey, go go to these guys and, and then just sell PLTs in the PLT cloud service. That's clearly the the easiest approach for us. It's just that we really needed to offer the Pogo Pin cassettes so that there was a solution, not just a product. And uh, so we do sell those through the website and it is custom, so it's not a completely self-service process, but we're trying to make it easier and easier to build up a cart, if you will, of here's my cassette, here's how I'm going to program my board. So here are the programming targets, here are the tests that I want to run beyond DMM type tests. And that's what we're working toward. You know, I'm curious your your thoughts on pogo pins themselves. If you go to DigiKey, Mauser, blah, 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 and you go search for pogo pins, you'll get a ton of varieties and you get a ton of varieties of the actual heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of them are really sharp. Some of them have a bunch of teeth on them. Some of them are domed. Do you have a particular one that you kind of gear your customers towards? Well, our our guidance are just circular test points that are... Um, one millimeter in diameter and two millimeters apart from center to center. And that's just a nice flat circle. And we have a pin that fits that just fine. It's not anything fancy. So it is actually just a needle type point, but we've worked with a wide variety of heads based on need. So for high current, there's a pretty mushroom shaped head that it engages a much larger contact on the board to supply more current. Another thing we run into quite a bit are those cases with the through-hole legs that come through to the bottom of the board, and that needle to that is not a good fit. That's uh, that test points or that uh, probe is not going to last very long. So we tend to go with cup-shaped for that type of situation. But the ideal situation is to have a nice flat land. Just a flat, can- yeah. That's everyone's favorite, I'm sure, that <laughs> finds themselves in, in this line of work. The other thing is traceability. So this is something that is oft neglected, even by us. On our demo board, we didn't do it, and, and we're kicking ourselves for it, which is just having keepouts for the labels on the top of the board, so test points on the bottom. But you need to have good labels on the top, and we're finding that we really need two labels on every board. So it's important to have some kind of board identifier at the start of production. So we we just refer to that as a board ID. And you want that because you don't know what's gonna happen during assembly and it may not pass, it may not ever see the light of day, but you still need to identify that board. So having this board ID label or you could laser mark it, I suspect, but normally a label's the easiest. And then another label at the very end that lets you know it's been tested. So we normally call that a PLT tested label. And that's also got an ID, but just seeing that label tells you, hey, there's a test report for this board. And so that's also something that doesn't, it takes up real estate, but it doesn't really cost anything and is a great design practice to save room for two labels uh, on your boards. Yeah, my favorite are the boards that they're just like, we just don't have space. And you're like, no, there's plenty of space. Just you got, you got to put that design in. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's really hard squeezing it in later. So if you just start the board design with, okay, here's this giant rectangle. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, you can put traces under it, but don't put any parts here. And um, it's just like you move into an apartment. If you don't save a little room for your your coats or your umbrellas or something, it's never, there's never going to be a good spot for it. It's almost like um, th- there's like a list of, when you start a new board layout, you should start, you always have, you have to make sure you have mounting holes for your PCB. There you go. Yeah. So you can mount it to wherever, right? <laughs> fiducials. And then there's always fiducials. And then now we need to add labels. Yeah. And we didn't, I mean, we're, we're experts in this and we didn't even do it. And we, we, there's no good place for it now. And we're just like, why this is, we should be better students than this. <laughs> That I have to admit, that is the nice thing about laser etching. We we have a laser at work, and if one of the engineers accidentally makes the spot for putting a label too small, just make put a two size font laser etch on the board. Yeah, you know, I'll have to chat with you later about because we we haven't found a laser that we like, and uh, that'd be cool to have that as a fallback. Yeah. Let's talk about that after the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about lasers. Yeah, I'm interested in that Robots, too. lasers. <laughs> I, I, I do think it's it's funny, though, because as a hardware design engineer, uh, especially with this podcast, and you know we're 400-something episodes deep, I could just keep writing a list of all of the DFXs that engineers have to go through. And this, in a good way, this just feels like another one. It's like design for test, but not only just design for test, design your hardware to be able to be tested is is what we're talking about. So like just another thing you have to keep in mind. It's like, oh, I have to design these pads uh, for a bed of nails testing. But, but even with your ICT, the circuit tester, Sure, you have the bed of nails underneath, but you also have to be able to apply pressure on the top of the board. And mm-hmm. I'm sure there's some considerations to that, even if the considerations are just here. Let me give you some some suggested areas to for the for the little legs to press down on the board. Yeah. Now that we were good about, we we put little circles on the top of the board, saying, "All right, here's where the hold down posts are going to engage with the board," and. Hardly anyone does that, but we were, it, it's called the PLT demo board because we knew we were going <laughs> to demo it with that type of uh, setup. So that's a good practice. I've wondered whether there's a way around that. Like uh, I was talking with one of our engineers about, could we just have like a foam pad that compresses down on the board that's universal so you don't have to engineer because as it is, you have to decide where these hold down posts go and drill them out and screw them into the pressure plate, as we call it, that that top plate. And it's it's very manual. It seems like something chat GPT ought to like have no problem figuring out or some it's a <laughs> it's a solvable problem, but we do it manually. Everyone I know still does that manually. And uh, it seems kind of trivial, but it can cause headaches if you don't have a good place to press down. This might be a really bad idea, but what if we use a vacuum? Well, that's that's a great idea, and it exists. That's what... Um, so sometimes I'll have conversations with people about ICT, and they're like, oh yeah, we, we have one, and it, it's... 
I-3070 or on the East Coast, I think they're more Teradyne centric and they use vacuum to pull down the board really, and uh, pull it against the, the probes. The pogo pins, yeah. But these machines are over a million dollars new, so it's a limited audience that can swing that. Yeah. But it can be fully automated. That's what's great about it is this can be in line. So we build pogo pin cassettes and, and ICT chassis is what we call the case that holds the cassette in place and gives you the lever to drop down the pressure plate. But we also use Ingen as an option. It's more expensive, but part of the attraction to using Ingen components, they build all these things as kits that you can customize for the boards. They're designed and built in Germany, but they already have adapters for those vacuum pulling systems. And so if somebody did have the volume that justified fully automating that process, we know where we could go and how we could build that. And we'd still just plug it into the PLT. I'm curious, um, back to your comment about the compressible foam, have you actually done any experiments with that and any successes? We haven't tried it. Uh, We just talked about it and it's on our Long, long, long list of things we want to try when we get to it. (laughs) (laughs) The forever improvement list, right? Yeah. We have, uh, I'm glad Jira doesn't charge by the issue or or something. Charge by ticket. Yeah, we would be uh, impoverished by by how many (laughs) things we've got in the backlog there, but we haven't tried it yet. All right. So back on determining or figuring out what you need to test for. Because when I talk to customers and engineers that are building through Macrofab, a lot of times test is, it's always a, a like afterthought for a lot of designers sure. and a lot of companies too, because they, they always expect it's just going to work, right? Uh, especially if it's one of their first products that they're, they're building, like if they're a startup or something mm-hmm. like that. And so you start talking about tests with them and you get two different kinds of camps. One is we don't want any testing and you're like, uh, okay, I guess let it rip. Um, (laughs) and then you have the other side, which is we want to test everything and make sure it's a hundred percent perfect. And there doesn't really seem to be a lot of people that are like in the middle. So how do you, how do you navigate that? Well, the customer is always right. So they can buy however much thoroughness they want. And, uh, what we're, trying to make it more and more feasible to do is figure out what the test will cost you before you actually uh, have to commit to it. So this idea of creating a menu of tests is designed to help you, even when you're designing the product, kind of imagine what that's going to cost you so that you don't get stuck in a trap where you're either going totally footloose on it and have no testing versus spending a lot of test automation rigs are hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if you haven't budgeted for it, and then at the last minute, you got to ask the CFO like, oh, uh, we can't ship until I pay this bill. That's a painful conversation. So by having things that are affordable to a large number of companies and allow you to keep adding and also adding stations in the case of you needing more speed. If you're 
test automation stations, $250,000, you're not just going to go buy another one when you want to double capacity. But if it's $5,000, you can do that. You can also afford to have it in your lab so that when you hear things aren't going well in the production line, oh, we're, we're seeing yield issues, you want to be able to say, all right, send me those, those bad boards. Let me, let me play with it. Let me try to recreate what you're seeing. And you can afford to do that when the test station is not so crazy expensive. And so testing is really valuable to do, of course, but it's not just more testing is always better. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are, have read the Toyota way and their whole thing is eliminating waste and focusing on quality. But one form of, of waste is too much quality is like one of their tenets. And I would say the same about tests, that if it's just too much testing, yes, you've tested more, but you, you kind of wasted money like that. Your customers don't appreciate that extra amount of testing. You might have got, taken it too far. And so I think we're all striving for that strategic amount of testing. And it's informed by producing your product over a period of years, handling returns in a professional way, really talking to your customers about what's going wrong with their products, with your products. And so I think it's it's okay to not have it all figured out at the beginning as long as you're creating those placeholders. I would never say, yeah, you don't need to test. I think that's that's insane. I think I think I'm going to uh steal that phrase and uh, and tell it to my quality team that that too much quality is a, is an issue actually. So, I think <laughs> uh they they're going to hear that tomorrow morning for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it's one of those. As long as it doesn't lead to them uh, not buying more PLTs, <laughs> I do. I, I do love the idea that the engineers can have a duplicate copy of a tester in the engineering lab, and uh, because that is so invaluable for for solving issues. And I cannot tell you how many times I've been at a job, and I've had a production manager upset because the the only way I could solve a problem is by getting in the middle of the line and getting on whatever machine it is and there's you know the the assemblers are all standing around as I'm trying to figure things out and all they're seeing is you know dollar signs yeah. escaping while I'm doing that and uh, yeah so so having something inexpensive enough to be able to, to put it in the lab absolutely invaluable it's unbelievable the pressure you feel when you're on a line you know, and just everybody's everybody's busy and there's just a lot of economic value flowing right before your eyes. And, and then when you say like, wait, I don't think that was, I don't think that one was tested or wait, they, is that is that a trained worker? Or is that somebody that just, you know, just sat in for a shift and, and they don't actually know what they're looking for? Like that's tremendously stressful and most people don't get the privilege of really witnessing that and seeing how how much can go wrong on production line. And so it's reassuring to know that you can have this paper trail so that whatever is happening, you can go back and look at the replay essentially and, and, and see, well, this is what we did. It may not be perfect. It may not test everything you could think of, but at least we know what we did. So this is a uh, topic that 
just drives me insane with a lot of the uh, a lot of customers at, at the fab with their testers. Uh, and these are not using, I don't know if it's a problem with, with Blue Clover's PLTs. This is just other people's testers. Um, and actually ones that I've designed too. <laughs> is when a DUT fails and then you retest it and it passes. It's a classic intermittent failure. <laughs> yeah, that is, especially where like you talk to customers about it, like if it's their own equipment basically and you talked about no, and you get customers that say it's a fail no matter what and then you have also customers that say if it, if it ever passes yeah then it's a pass and it's like well how many times can you test it until it finally passes <laughs> best out of three <laughs> yeah and yeah well most time when you ask that question they don't respond <laughs> to you at all yeah because they don't know the answer yeah they don't want to own that <laughs> yeah they, they don't want to own that and so in your, it's mostly coming down to to the design of the test and what you're testing for, and making sure that you're, it, you know, it's consistent. So how do you go and approach that? Yeah, it's it's about building confidence in the test setup. So you have to have golden samples that you know work, and then you have to be able to grab that golden sample, put it through, and hopefully a range if it's something that's got maybe calibration associated with it or some products simply have things that have a high low attribute to them and so you'll have maybe two samples that are serving as your golden sample but you want to be able to put that in your tester and run it a hundred times and just know it always passes so if this one doesn't it's different and how it's different is in the test report and so having a test report that's just automatically time-stamped, stamped with which PLT in our case, which pogo pin cassette. So we have pogo pin cassette IDs that get stamped on it. All the artifacts the phase of, of the, the moon. DUT, <laughs> the phase of the moon, I wish. Uh, <laughs> you know, weather would be a great thing to stamp on there. We can do that at the cassette level. We don't do it at the PLT level, but you can put a temp sensor in the in the cassette and make that part of the test plan to just record ambient temperature, uh, humidity level. And uh, it all just gets in the report because anything like that that's manual is realistically just not going to be consistently done. And uh, so that's why it's great to just push a button and know that you can always go back and check those things. Yeah. And even just having a uh, golden, golden samples are like, that's like gives you 90% of the way there. I would say also if you're listening out there and you're, you're developing tests and that kind of stuff. And if you can also provide like golden fails mm-hmm. as well, like, you know, this unit always is fails. going to fail in this <laughs> way every single time. Thus you can also what, what do they call that on a tester when you test for that? This is some specific term for it. Uh, not GRR, the gauge. Um, that might be it. I forget what the R's mean. Or it might be something that my QA guy made up. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. you can take it pretty deep for sure. I guess having that reference sample and like you say, the golden fail is... I haven't heard it called that, but that's a good <laughs> good phrase for it. Just having that handy near the tester so that when things come up, because things do come up that are mysterious 
And uh, you guys probably remember the 30-pin connector from Apple before the Lightning connector. Apple had 30 pins. We were building some audio boards that were iPod docks, basically, and then they had this um, amplifier, and it was just really high-end stuff. And those iPods had a measurement where they would measure the resistance between two of the 30 pins, and it had to be within a certain range. And we tested for that. And we were having that problem of like, sometimes pass, sometimes fail, and it was intermittent, and some behave differently. Look at it, and they all look the same. And it took us a long time to see that it was just flux residue. Like it was a cleaning process that after we cleaned it on all the boards, then they would all pass. But it just took a long time and you have to go through those experiences before you, you may not be able to think of it at the at the start of it, but as long as it's easy to update a test and that you have consistency in how you test, that's a pretty, it makes it faster, um, I'll say that. So Blue Clover, you started in 2003, right? Yes. Okay, so that's it's 20, year, 20 years now, yeah. So in 20 years, what has been like your greatest achievement so far at Blue Clover? Like you would be the most proud of, like you would put that star sticker on it <laughs> and be like, yes. Laser it on. It, yeah, it, laser it on. <laughs> I think the team is what I'm the proudest of that we've just had tremendous ups and downs over the years. And so just we have very long time employees and uh, a great team and a great culture. And I think customers appreciate that, that we have core values that we really stick to. And I think that's why we get a lot of repeat business. That's hard to laser, uh, put a laser on. I wouldn't want you to laser etch our, our team. So uh, please don't. But I think it has culminated, this teamwork has culminated in the production line tool, and that's our first product. That's the only product we've put our brand on. And all these lessons over the years have really gone into making this this product and helping us transition from being a service business into a product business. We did consider a lot of other products. So we we made lights that were sensor-activated lights, LED lights. We called it Sensolite. We tooled it up and we built a bunch. And then we just felt like it wasn't unique enough to really be a product that we, you know, we just continue to invest in and market and all of that. So we tested it, tested the waters and just decided not to really go for it. We actually built desks that were powered desks, if you can believe that. So uh, when I worked at Boeing, we had these um, tanker desks. I don't know if you've seen that style, with, like steel desk with drawers. And uh, back in the 50s, I guess everybody used to have desks like that. And now they don't make them anymore. And we had one from a place called Retro Office and we reverse engineered it and built a bunch of them and the idea was it would be a smart desk. So when you come up to it, you could lock and unlock it with your phone and it would supply power for your computer and everything. So you just plug things into your desk instead of 
needing a power strip. And we built a hundred of them or so. And then we also got cold feet on that. We're like, I don't think we can afford to be in the desk business. <laughs> so we just, <laughs> we use them. We, <laughs> they last forever, but we didn't go for it. And then the PLT was a later experiment at, at first. And that's the one where we said, you know, this is, this is unique and people need it. It solves a problem. Let's go for it. So that's our first product. And that's the only one we, we uh, put our brand on now. How long has the PLT been, uh, have you been manufacturing it? We started it five years ago and we're on our second generation. So the first one, one was the PLT 200 and now we ship the PLT 300. And um, the first- What happened to the PLT 100? <laughs> we, we didn't think anyone would buy that. They'd be like, oh, this is too- Too low of too a number? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess we built the 100 for a customer, like a specific project. That's probably how that turned out. And then we, we decided the next one would be the 200. And, and then we, yeah, again, named by engineers. So not very, we didn't want to get too crazy with our uh, naming scheme. But the, the 300 is a huge improvement because we can actually use it to program and test PLTs, which was a shortcoming of the 200. It, it wasn't capable of programming Linux class devices. It was really aimed at 32-bit microcontrollers and it was kind of limited in, in what we could do with that. So it's almost it can replicate itself. Almost, yeah. We just need more robots and lasers. <laughs> so is there is there any new uh, developments coming from Blue Clover soon or projects that you want to talk about? Well, we're releasing a new operating system and one of the cool things about that is uh, getting a second display. So the display on the PLT300 is essentially a cell phone display. It's an OLED and a seven inch, and uh, you can show a lot on it. It's, it's got nice graphics, but some people are used to being in a factory and seeing a full monitor and they, they're like, well, I like to walk up behind the operator and you know be able to see what's been happening over the last hour. Yeah, and see <laughs> see see this on a, a big screen. And this new OS will enable us to have a secondary display that can show what's on the little screen, but also show a lot more stuff. And it's also got the uh, benefit of it; it's faster, so it'll make tests run run better and. I think everybody who uses it will appreciate that. Oh, cool. In terms of inputs to the PLT, so let's say I have my board inside of one of these in-circuit testers and I need to uh, hit some buttons or I need to uh, wiggle some of, the, some of the lines on that. Does the PLT allow for me to design a box that I could put inputs into my circuit? Yeah, those would be additional things that you could add to a cassette. So just some examples of things you can do. So let's say you have buttons on your board, you wanna push them, uh, you can add actuators to the cassette. So those would not be, typically they're on the top side, so they get integrated into the pressure plate and you could have a test plan that activates those actuators and at a certain 
point in the test, it would just push a specific button under your control. We can also read LEDs. So that's uh, an add-on that we just call LED analyzer. And so that's a fiber optic that can look at an LED because that's a painful thing for an operator to have to do is, do you see a green LED right now? And Can you type in the hue of the LED that you see? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's a great thing to automate. And so we can just look at that and tell color and intensity of an LED as, as an add-on. I've just had flashbacks from one. We were testing RGB LED. It was, it was an RGB LED on a board that we were testing. And the customer was complaining about the color blue wasn't the blue that they thought. Mm. And you t- tested, I'm like, it looks blue to me and looks blue to everyone else. And it wasn't the hue that they wanted. Um, yeah. So I've yeah, had that it, conversation. <laughs> it was yeah. around orange. But uh, <laughs> yeah, people uh, have all different sensitivities to to color and, and things mm-hmm. like that. We actually just ran into that with our PLT where we have different, we have sheet metal. It's made out of sheet aluminum and powder coated and it's a specific color. It's signal white, which is a RAL standard. And that's been the case since we launched the product. So there's no no ambiguity in our minds, but we got two different parts in and they weren't matching and they're right next to each other on the product. And I said, well, we need to get out the Minolta color meter and just Figure out which clarify wrong. how close it needs to be to this sample, which is in a, in a book. And it takes a little time to pin those things down, but there's always a way to verify that it's, it is what you've requested or what you've listed as a requirement. So is that why all test equipment is that color? Because that's the standard. <laughs> I didn't even know there was a standard for that. That's I, of course, Parker. There's a standard for everything. <laughs> yeah, given the color of a tester. Aesthetics engineering is a whole nother beast. Getting things to look, air quotes, look proper is. You don't learn that in school. You learn that in the trenches for yeah. sure. And and it's not always enough to just put like the proper note on your drawing that sometimes even if you do that, you still don't get what you're looking for. Yeah, that's the benefit of having a lot of clients. So we we would never have known any of this stuff if we didn't have clients with all ranges of pickiness. We had um, some guys from Incase who studied with Johnny Ive and they had requests for everything, you know, like every texture, every color, every every little detail of the product had to be something. And uh, that really educated us on how far you can take it on the aesthetic side. And we, we didn't go that far, but we at least knew you don't just leave it to chance. I know you guys talked to the teenage engineering crew. Those guys have a really cool aesthetic and I'm sure it took a lot of work to get all those knobs and dials just right on, on their products. It, it looks looks really slick. Yeah, how much uh, custom like physical manufacturing they do is just mind boggling. Yeah. And they were, I mean, we talked about their testing rigs a little bit. I mean, they're going down to the point of measuring the force of buttons on a production line. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for So they're very, very particular about 
the look, but but also the feel of their product. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's led to some really nice. I I don't have their products, but uh, they definitely look really really slick. I'm impressed. Yeah, I did notice on your website there is an image that uh, of of some synthesizer stuff on there. I was looking around. I was like, hey, I know what those are. <laughs> <laughs> Pete, Stephen, you got anything else you want to bring up? Our mission is eliminating e-waste, so I was just going to make a, a suggestion that, that folks look at their warranty protocols. So we've got a five-year warranty on our stuff, and uh, we encourage the industry to move beyond one year, which is kind of the norm right now. And I think it's maybe mandated in Europe already to go to two years. So as a gesture toward eliminating waste, Extending warranties is, is a great place to start. It's very pro-customer anyway and uh, is pro-engineering because it forces you to engineer your products in a better way. And then um, just something I'm looking for, if anyone knows of a place that's collecting electronics and then doing something productive with it other than like turning it into a into a paperweight or a piece of art that you just hang on the wall, like just some some way to harvest the value in used electronics. I know there are board shredders and there's there's valuable material in it, but even in a place like the Bay Area that you'd think it would be pretty far along on that kind of thing, we all just throw it in the trash and uh, love to uh, find a way around that. So if there's any place that's got that figured out, like a community that just knows how to collect electronics and dispose of it or process it in a a clean way, that'd be cool to know about. Yeah, let us know in uh, at our uh, discourse, which is circuit-break.macrofab.com. Pete, have you you been into our uh, new discourse? No, I'm I'm more of a Slack addict and- uh, (laughs) Yeah, we got rid of our Slack. (laughs) So that's sort of our uh, channel right now, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll, Look into that. Yeah. All right, cool. Um, but again, so Pete, where can people find out more about you and Blue Clover and your PLT? The website is bcdevices.com for Blue Clover devices. And um, we have pricing and a lot of information accessible from the, the homepage. There's a good docs page that's accessible from the homepage which is docs.pltcloud.com and um, happy to answer questions. So it, it's some, this is a product that you don't just buy it and you, you have to get intimate with it. So if questions come up, just reach out and we've got a really good team ready to support you. All right. So uh, again, thank you, Pete, for joining us on the podcast. For those that are listening to the podcast, if you're interested more about Pete and Blue Clover devices, please see the links in our show notes. Thanks so much, guys. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for coming on. And thank you for listening to Circuit Break. We are your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steve and I know. Let us know at Circuit Break dot macrofab.com which is our new discourse community hub 